We Have Issues is a weekly podcast full of reviews of comics and oversharing. We use grown-up language to make very childish jokes. You can find the show at wehaveissues.net, as well as anywhere else where average to not too bad podcasts can be found. listener and welcome to we have issues 126 it's been mm, over a year since the last episode since uh, episode 125 which i did with david Wynn. there have been lots of different reasons why that's been the case they're almost all my fault it's not you it's definitely me um none of the collaborators really disappeared um it's look i Feeling pretty vulnerable. I've already had a therapy session today. Feels kind of like this is the stuff we cover on the other podcast. So, um, so let's let's say it's not you. Maybe it's comics. Maybe it's a little bit of my other stuff. You might be hearing some mouth noises. That's that's also not not you. It's also not me though. It's uh, it's my dog. My dog's in the room with me. If there's uh, some sort of snuffly noises in the background that's that's probably her so why have we been away for a year not going to get into that um the main reason i've chosen today to do this episode is because it's actually david Wynn's birthday he's something like 73 74 must be 73 because i'm thinking of it as a landmark here and there was number 73 which is where i got to know sandy totsvig uh, on telly and I've always loved her so it's probably his 73rd birthday he's very old that's the important thing to note um, and I haven't bought him anything and I'm not going to go over to see him in Brighton for his 73rd birthday so um, I know he likes the show and he did the music for the show so I think he might appreciate a new episode the rest of you you're all welcome to listen can't guarantee it'll be any good uh, but you are all welcome to listen. But this is mainly a birthday present for David Wynn. That's entirely not true. I'm hoping to come back weekly. Um, it's just uh, baby steps, trying to not to put too much pressure on myself because um, uh, that's clearly been a problem. I've been a very driven human being in the past. If you've listened to the show, you'll you'll know how motivated I am by perfection and accuracy and uh productivity these are all very important things to me normally um so i'm hoping to get back to that hoping to get back to a weekly show we will see uh i have been doing a lot more on the facebook group for the other 10 percent. that's generally where i talk about comics now and any other stuff it's been very fixated on 1980s marvel comics for some reason it's where i try and focus on uh, keeping people talking about positive things that they like it's not specifically just for comics it's not that we have issues group it's the 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 other 10 percent group um but it is mainly comics that get talked about there at the moment but anyone's welcome to come along and join in that conversation uh over there so that's the other 10 percent group on facebook um what else what else have i been doing i've been reading a lot of comics actually in the last few weeks trying to get back up to speed with what's going on and there have been loads of really good comics around. 
uh, but I'm gonna I'm gonna focus on two very specific ones that have have resonated really personally for me for whatever reasons. Uh, but there's there's been loads of good stuff out in the last year, and hopefully I'll get around to talking about some of that over the coming weeks, and hopefully it won't just be me talking about them. Um, we do have a contribution from Peter Hammerson this week. He's going to be talking about a couple of French comics, uh, Angor and Chronicles of the Dragon Knight, which I haven't read, and I don't think he's he's read a lot of French comics. I don't think he read them in French, by the way. I don't think he's read a lot of French comics. He he does he does mention that it's slightly he's mentioned to me actually that it's slightly outside his comfort zone talking about them but i think it's quite interesting getting his perspective because he's a pretty sharp guy um and as i said i'm going to be talking about a couple of comics too so uh, with your indulgence i'm going to let peter talk to you now and i'll talk to you afterwards hi my name is peter hammerson a little while ago i was thinking about finding something new to talk about something that i was completely unfamiliar with my preferred comic delivery system these days is Comixology, so I opened the website and steered myself to the sales to see what looked good. What I found were some decent discounts on some translated European comics. Now, I'm always interested in some good continental comic book, so almost at random I picked two. Volume 1 of a series called Angor, that's A-N-G-O-R, and Volume 1 of The Chronicles of the Dragon Knights. Angor is published by Delcor. The writer is Jean-Charles Godin. Art by Dimitri Armand. Colours are by the mononamed Hariatib, with Armand. Uh, the Hulkaboodle has been translated into English by Christina Cox de Ravel. Chronicles of the Dragon Knights is also published by Delcor. And the writer is another enigmatic one-named creator called Ange with art by Alberto Veranda and colour by Crazy Tunes, uh, and it is translated by one Edward Gavin. Angor and Chronicles of the Dragon Knights have a lot in common. They're both set in magical fantasy kingdoms, with each having a specific hook that the story hangs on. In Angor, society is split into a strict hierarchy of castes, which runs from the lowest peasants through a warrior class of knights, to the aristocratic nobles and the royal family. In the Chronicles, the key to the story is the existence of dragons, but these are not just your standard, everyday, flying, fire-breathing monsters. These dragons have a twist. They exert a sort of malign, magical, psychic influence, turning people into monsters who will savagely attack anyone and anything they come across. In Angor, we begin by meeting three low-caste teenagers. Talin is training to join the warrior caste to try and get a bump up from his peasant farmer status. Evrain is a determined young woman facing an arranged marriage and limited future prospects. Finally, we meet Lorki, who is also called Corky in the Comixology synopsis for some reason. Lorki is the youngest of the group. He's an orphan living with his older brother on a farm. Unlike Evrain, he sees that in the current society, his future is looking pretty bleak. In the Chronicles of the Dragon Knights, we follow the adventures of two young women. Their future prospects are also somewhat limited, but under very different circumstances. For reasons that remained unexplained, the corrupting magical field that these dragons produce doesn't affect female virgins. Make of that what you will. The two characters we meet are Jaina, who the story is named after, and Ellis. Jaina is the Dragon Knight, and Ellis is her squire. 
And both of them are very much trapped in their roles due to their current status as, well, virgins. We don't learn too much about the Dragon Knights in the first volume. But obviously there are certain things that members can never do. And they have this responsibility to fight and probably get killed by massive dragons. Back in Angor, the instigating event that gets the story going is Talon witnessing a crime and taking advantage of an opportunity that the crime creates. Evrain and Lorki join Talon in running away from their homes and families. While this is an opportunity for them to gain their freedom and break out of the roles society has chosen for them, they are being pursued by the law and have in their possession a mysterious artifact which may grant them incredible power but could also get them incredibly killed. Over in the world of the Dragon Knights, Jaina and Ellis are on a mission. They have been called to investigate a dragon infestation in an isolated region. Along the way we learn more about the world of the dragons and their peculiar effects on people, as well as some more personal flashbacks into Jaina's past. The final confrontation with the dragon is complicated by the presence of a fort, defended by a group of men who appear to be unaffected by the dragon's psychic influence. Looking at Angor, the first thing that really jumps out is the art. From the very first page, Dimitri Armand's work is beautifully clear and modern. The environments and the locations are perfectly realised, and you get a very keen sense of all of the locations being different places, but all existing in the same culture. The households of Lorki, Evrain and Talon have elements in common, but also look distinctive and reflect that they are inhabited by three different families. The colour art in the comic is good, however I feel it does lack some emotion and expression. The story would benefit from a less literal approach to colour. The story in Angor moves fast. The background to the society is set up naturally within the exposition, and each team's specific problems tell you about the world as well as their characters. The book itself is well structured. A nice and fairly relaxed opening sequence sets the scene, followed by the instigating event which then accelerates the pace. We go from fight into flight with twists, mysteries and action. Overall, I would recommend Angle Volume 1. It's a good book which only suffers from a lack of imagination in the colouring and the occasional poorly placed word balloon. Chronicles of the Dragon Knights Volume 1 isn't quite the same unreserved recommendation though. The artwork itself is good, it, it has a bit of a 1990s superhero feel to it. It reminds me a bit of Joe Madureo or Humberto Ramos, but from years ago. It suffers from some strange panel compositions here and there. And sometimes the people in the world look very brittle, and the environments are a bit more generic fantasy than in Angor. As in Angor, the colouring is good, but generally quite literal, except in some dream sequences where it gets more interesting. The big problem with Chronicles of the Dragon Knights is this weird sexual element that's been built into it. The, the idea is that only women virgins are immune to the dragon's influence, and as a result they can approach them and kill them with more ease, although it's still dangerous work. Now, that's a very strange idea for a story in the first place, and the creepiness is exacerbated by the very sexualised portrayal of the two leads. The worst example of this is the armour that Jaina wears for her final battle with the dragon. The dragon apparently can't sense her presence, so I can understand that light armour may allow for more stealth, speed and manoeuvrability, even if that's at the cost of better protection in the long run. But in the end, we have the lead character charging into battle with her right breast swinging in the wind. If nothing else, that can't be comfortable. 
Chronicles of the Dragon Knights is interesting and it's well executed, but I can't wholeheartedly recommend it. This weird undercurrent of male gaze titillation is ever present and spoils the ideas that are interesting and different. If you can get past all that, then there's an interesting world to discover. But for me, I don't think I'll be delving any deeper. So, in conclusion, Angor is a recommendation. Chronicles of the Dragon Knights is not so much. Now, I have been Peter Hammerson, and I was here talking about comics today. If you would like to talk back to me about comics, you can find me on Twitter at P-Y-T-Y-R-H. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you all soon. Goodbye. So I mentioned before that over on the the other 10% group on Facebook, I've been kind of fixating on 1980s Marvel, and that's because those are the comics I read a lot as a kid. There was also a little bit of a... There was one of those pick 10 images that mean something to you over the the next 10 days thing going around, and I actually did the one for comic covers, um, and it turned out most of the ones that resonated were from the 1980s. There were a couple of those, like Deadline and 2080 and stuff like that, Um, which isn't entirely surprising, but I'd have thought... I'm still reading very up-to-date stuff. I don't read a lot of... Uh, I'm not a nostalgia-facing comic reader, necessarily. But I guess those are the books that have sat with me and I've sat with for the longest and I've reread the most over time. So they are the ones that dug in deep. Um, but I'm not really reading that much Marvel or DC stuff at the moment. I've always been more of a Marvel guy anyway. I spent a lot of time, like a couple of years ago, I think, I picked up a bunch of uh, acclaim or valiant valiant comics from um, from humble bundle and then didn't read them so i've been catching up on those which is kind of peculiar because uh, i realize as i look around that what seems like super current up-to-date comics for me like quite modern comics are actually from a few years ago and 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 that company's uh universes has moved on quite a lot from there but so i've been in the past i've always kind of avoided anything that looked a little bit like a superhero universe building stuff mainly because while i like that stuff at marvel and dc those are the those are the universes i'm familiar with um i tend to see it as a crutch for the medium Uh, i i have talked about this in the past but you know i haven't talked about about any of this for over a year, but so um, I tend to think of those spandex universes as a bit of a crutch, and it's it's always been frustrating for me that that's the first thing anyone does, and that goes right back to when Image reformed, and the first thing most of those guys did were their own creator owned versions of the stuff they've been working with at Marvel, um, working on at Marvel, sorry, and that's a really simplistic and reductive way of looking at it, but that's how I've always kind of seen it. I'm not in this for the world building necessarily so it's it's been a bit weird because i've been exploring a few other um continuities a bit more continuity porny stuff than i normally would have read uh, over the last year and i'll hopefully dig into some of that on, on future episodes but one of the books i wanted to talk about today um is i've just realized when reading up on it a bit today that it is meant to be part of i think a, a newish shared universe. I say new. I think it's been going on for about a year, anyway. Uh, but it's the Catalyst Prime universe, which I didn't. Re- I don't think I'd. I don't think I'm in the loop enough to realise was actually a thing. The uh, the book I'm talking about is called Kino, 
uh, K-I-N-O. And I'm only really reading it because I follow Alex Packnadel. Sorry if I'm pronouncing that surname wrong. I know how frustrating it is when people get your surname wrong. Um, but I follow him because I've really enjoyed some of his uh, work in the past. And it turns out we know a few of the same people as well, just by coincidence. That's not really a coincidence. Comics in the UK is really small. Um, but so I follow him and he's been talking about this book and it was really strange because it, he he picked it up from issue 10. Uh, previously Joe Casey had been writing it who I like Joe Casey's stuff but I hadn't even seen seen this book and it was a it was like a superhero e-book and I probably wouldn't have looked at it probably wouldn't have thought to look at it straight away anyway and so I saw um, Alex tweet about it and I thought well I mean good for him that seems like most of the stuff I've seen him do I think is stuff that he's created from scratch uh he kind of it felt like he came out of nowhere a little bit for me and he was immediately very talented um so the fact that other people seem to be giving him work to do I thought no fine good but I you know I hadn't read the first few issues so I probably wasn't going to pick it up and then I saw other people talking about it like um I think one of my friends was talking about how um strong a representation of mental illness these these uh the first few issues of of uh, Packendales have been and I thought oh so he's doing something really it sounds like a bit more personal or a bit more considered with this so I picked up the first few issues and it's true and I've I've noticed this about other creators before who I've got to know because we move in approximately the same circles um I'm going to be talking about Kieran Gillen in a in a minute, and and Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey were, have always been incredibly talented creators, but I felt for like with them the work they did when they started working at Marvel rather than on the creator owned stuff forced them to uh, have a sort of a certain discipline in their work that leveled both of them up an incredible amount from where they were before. They were always good, but they became way better once they started working with other people's stuff. Um, I wouldn't have necessarily said I'd thought that Pac Nadell had room to level up. His He already had a really authentic voice and his world building was already really strong and his character work was really strong. But his work on Kino is just beautiful. I forget that I'm reading something that's been written which doesn't happen to me as often as you know you'd hope when reading or watching or 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 um well reading or watching really those are the two main things anything it doesn't it doesn't really happen that i see something that catches me out quite that much and i really feel it a lot i'll get into a bit more detail about that in a minute but it's it's been interesting for me because while i was doing this thing of looking back at comics i used to love uh, that have stuck with me all of this time, I found that some of the uh, passages in Kino really reminded me of some of those. So there are elements of... So the story of Kino, let's go into that a little bit. Um, the, the story is fairly straightforward. It's about a British military uh, uh, major, Major Alistair Meath, who, through a series of heroic incidents... Um, 
he ends up like i think in the issues i haven't read ends up trying to sacrifice himself and and accidentally becoming a really very powerful superhero called kino um at, at the point where i'm starting to read this at the point where this book it's it's a subtitled volume three at the point that this picks up um he's returned from a mission people know who he is uh mi6 are taking a a a lot of interest in him um there are some legacy characters from previous runs there's a guy called cole who's an assassin with a grudge there's an agent called devlin who i believe has has encountered meath before who has um some mundane like domestic stuff that brings out a lot of humanity in the story as well as that goes on in this um and then there's Meath himself, who has returned to his family, and he and his wife, um, they're trying to just move on, and everything seems fine. But his wife is clearly not entirely comfortable with what, what is going on. He seems to have forgotten a lot of really important things. And at the same time, there is a homeless man uh, who's heavily bearded, fallen very hard times, very, uh, like, drinks an awful lot, stumbles around an awful lot, has taken an interest in the Meaths. But it's clear that he knows more about them than he should, and it's fairly obvious fairly early on that he is having an identity crisis of sorts, He's remembering things that, strictly speaking, he shouldn't be able to remember. Um, that that connect him to to uh, Kino and to Alistair Meath. I have read the first four issues, well, uh, between ten and fourteen. I think there's a new one out since, and there's hardly any superheroics in this. It's literally just a tale of these very human characters, albeit heightened human characters, sort of re- uh, revolving revolving around each other but they're sort of going through their own cycles they're going through their own dramas um and they're very human dramas you see them being exploited you see them working stuff out um working stuff out that's been done to them working stuff out that uh that they've been traumatized by and it really wasn't it wasn't if if I hadn't known, if I hadn't been introduced to it via Pac Nadell and via pe- the things people were saying about it, it would have quite surprised me because I'm reading a superhero comic, basically. Which isn't to say that superhero comics can't be like that. And the things that this reminded me of were comics like Zenith uh, Grant with Grant Morrison and um, Steve Yowl back in 2018. Not so much the craziness in those books, but the quippy humanity of them in fact it's very in a way it's very similar because even though these both zenith and this comic were set in uh are set in britain and it's not that heightened to britain it's also uh there are characters who are sort of there are politicians in it who are a little bit shady in this and also in zenith and they kind of talk in similar ways which reminds me it hadn't occurred to me that maybe pac nadel was influenced quite a lot by that that stuff I, i don't know um but these are their MI6 agents and they talk the way you'd expect MI6 agents to. So it, it, there, are, there are times when it reminded me a lot of Zenith and the Englishness of that. But also the scale of it reminds me a lot of Miracle Man as well. It reminds me of, although that was a strange situation because I never really read Alan Moore's Miracle Man, but I was aware of it. 
and the scale of it. I started reading Neil Gaiman and more crucially Mark Buckingham's run on it, which, uh, um, as far as I know, the storytelling was was much more uh, grounded in those, as weird as things got. And it, it was just very human stories set in this world that that someone else had created and this, this new writer was coming in and and staying true to the original but telling these very human stories about how people are dealing with the consequences of the shit that has gone on before. And um, and that seems to be what this book's, book's talking about. But as, as I mentioned before, it seems very personal as well. Now, I have been reading uh, Pac Nadell's Friendo, which is his kind of his big idea book it's entirely him and the artist's thing and it's got a lot of big ideas in and it's very much a commentary on the present through the prism of um a, a very crazy future and it's got loads of ideas and um i had heard a lot more about that book than this one up till this point i liked friendo but Kino is just hitting me in lots of places where I really like stories to hit me. It's not that it's not that Friendo um, isn't all of the things it promises to be. It is, but I like the ones that make me feel the stories that make me feel more human first. If that makes sense, I don't know if that sounds like a criticism or or what. But the ideas in this aren't as big as the way the characters in it deal with what's going on i should mention the artist as well because the artist has a, a lot to do with why this reminds me of uh, the things it reminds me of actually of, of zenf and mark buckingham's work on miracle man it's a uh, diego galindo who i don't believe i've seen uh, their work before with colors by adam gazowski and um the uh the uh, it's it's very grounded the sequential storytelling in it is very clear the whole way through but the character work is also really good so facial expressions the people in it are very believable um their body language is very believable when the when there are superheroics and when there's action there's a fight scene in a bathroom that is just because of the setting of it is is just great actually great fun and a real uh really nice character beat in it but the uh, the visual storytelling in it is really really good, and it reminds me of people like um, Steve Yowl when he was at his uh, not so much in the final book of Zenith where he was very much playing with the 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 heavy black and white areas of the of the page when when he was just drawing these very boldly inked um, characters having conversations and stuff like that, and the same with Mark Buckingham and and I think Diego Galindo does a similar thing where. Um, the the art is really pleasing on just the 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 conversations characters are having because there's lots of a lot of this plays out in conversations and the dialogue is just beautiful there are some lines um between uh one of the two main protagonists in it and this uh seedy politician who is who could be out of zenith but also basically could be out of any point in the last 30 or 40 years of British politics, to be honest. But there's some dialogue um, and some phrasing in there that just, it amazes me that I get to talk to the people online who write stuff like that. It's, there are a lot of great writers out there, but it isn't often that I see phrasing that I wish I could have written, 
really. It's it's really good. Kino is a very good comic. Um, I can't speak for the first nine issues of it, but from 10 to 14, really, really good comics. And it evokes Miracle Man um, prior to, you know, the Alan Moore Miracle Man uh, comics a little bit. Um, I think it's around 14 or 15. Uh, but I, to go into that more would, would be a bit of a... A bit, a bit too much of a spoiler. It's just really, really good. Human superheroics, good, very good. I don't know where it fits into Catalyst Prime. I don't know what Catalyst Prime is. Um, I'm probably, I'll probably look into that a little bit later on. But um, it doesn't need to be read as part of that universe. The other book I feel compelled to talk about today. Um, it's actually it's quite a surprise for me so that it's resonating with me as much as it is so um, I mentioned Kieran Gillen before and I have always really liked Kieran Gillen's writing when I've read it Um, I really liked his run on Thor Um, Sword was very good I can't remember what the uh, the there was a Marvel uh, youth team book he did, and I can't remember what it was called, but it was really good anyway. The one with Cable's uh, uh, foster daughter in it, in it. Um, it, it was very good indeed. But most of his uh, creator-owned stuff, the stuff that he and Jamie McKelvey have worked on together specifically, but some of his other stuff as well, he's normally, I think it's fair to say that, he's normally writing to a, a personal spec that means that the finished product isn't really for me okay there's lots of uh uh very specific world building it's angled at i think an audience that maybe skews a little bit younger than me there's a lot of uh very deliberate um focus on and and deconstruction of pop culture and then there's a bunch of star wars stuff he's done i haven't really read many of the star wars books at all that is very like keyed into the continuity of what marvel are doing with that stuff at the moment so it's it's interesting because he's a writer who is from He's he's strictly speaking my generation, but he's a little bit younger. I think he's I think he's a few years younger than I am. Uh, but he's a, a guy from my generation who's uh, uh, sort of cycled through a lot of similar circles to me. I think a lot of the music he's been into, even though he's been way more um, into it than I have. We've been into roughly similar things a lot. We're both British. Uh, we've we've both seen a lot of the same cult, cultural stuff and he writes a lot about that stuff or picks projects that are inspired by a lot of that stuff and weirdly that hasn't been the stuff that I've always really enjoyed reading about in comics um, so Wicked and Divine I read the first few issues of that could see it was this beautiful piece of work but that it it wasn't hitting me really hard it wasn't resonating and it seems to be the sort of book where it would work best if it really resonated with you same with phonogram and um young avengers even was a little bit like that as well books that are really uh really emotional really going for certain hooks that will work absolutely if they speak to you but for me i could sort of see where they were coming from but could tell that they weren't for me now 
his latest collaboration with Stephanie Hands, whose uh, whose work I'd seen on um, I on the the uh, Thor books, I think he did at Marvel. Um, could could have gone could have gone either way really because it's very nostalgia facing and it's very it's 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 literally it's about uh six kids who uh in 1991 they're sort of teenagers and they they go and they play a, a role-playing game and they end up falling into the world of the role-playing game and then they uh return after i think a couple of years um they just with everyone thinking they've died or, or whatever there's and five of them return one of them remains and then the action picks up 27 years later it could it could literally be seen as a sequel to um the the tv show dungeons and dragons which was a huge part of my childhood and i'm assuming um kieran's as well kieran i think played a lot of rpgs that's a that's a a very specific thing for him i played them a little bit these are all things i i touched on but i didn't socialize enough maybe to really i don't know for whatever reasons i i understand that world a little bit but i was i was never as saturated in it so there are a lot of cultural touchstones there that mean that if i was going to respond to nostalgia or to feeling like to recognizing myself or people i knew in a story this one would really work for me but also traditionally i reject that stuff anything that's too familiar i like that's too like aimed at touching on that stuff i i kind of resist for whatever reasons maybe maybe it's because i'm egotistical and it isn't if it's not exactly the way i'd have done it i uh i reject it i don't know that's that's probably something for therapy maybe maybe i'll bring that up with my therapist of course i'll i'll first have to explain my entire pop culture background and who Kieran Gillen is. But anyway, so it's a very RPG-centric story, um, very heavily uh, inspired by or nostalgic of that concept of the uh, young people taken out of time, they're returned, they carry around a whole bunch of the guilt. Actually, uh, I was rereading a Neil Gaiman story recently that was about um, the last remaining one of the kids who go to Narnia. I can't remember their names. And and it, it has a lot of that sort of survivor's guilt thing going on. The, the These people went to this fantastic world. They had these fantastic, if horrifying adventures. And in all the years since, they've just had normal, they've tried to have normal lives. And all of them have. They've moved on quite a lot. Um, as is probably predictable, this story picks up 27 years later in the present day and they're all drawn together and taken back to this world. I should state this isn't actually the Dungeons and Dragons world. This is a world that Kieran Gillen and one of the characters in the story have created. It's a, it's a bespoke RPG game that one of the friends in the story uh, came up with specifically to entertain his best friend who is one of the other characters in the story so we're introduced to these six kids at the beginning then we're introduced to five of them as adults we are told we are kind of given the opportunity to piece together some of the stuff that happened to them back in the world of die which i think is the name of the world but also um in the intervening years 27 years is a lot of time okay um and 
I'll be honest, that side of things really did not so much the the role playing games, not so much the return of the return to uh, childhood friends or any of that stuff. There's an, there's a lack of sentimentality to the way uh, Gillen writes these characters um, that resonated with me. You know, I I like many people in my generation, as well as probably people in earlier generations and more recent ones, have had to try and piece together some of those dynamics and relationships from when I was much younger because in my case I didn't keep track of most of those people but Facebook has meant being reintroduced to them almost organically and and trying to work out well was that all of that fondness and antipathy antipathy and and um and weirdness back then was it real does it still exist? Are we still those people? Um, mostly we are still those people, but everything's different through a prism of time. So, so that, that part of it did kind of resonate with me, that, well, what if you could go back um, and spend time with those people? How fond of each other would you be? How much um, resentment would there be? And it's all told through the prism of the fact that they also went to this hellish RPG-style world um, and had all sorts of um adventures and nightmares one of them returned without an arm for example um one of them is a is a guy who plays uh, who in the in the world of the role playing game is uh, plays a woman and so there's some interesting uh, dynamic stuff going on there as well um i enjoyed the first couple of issues i should say as well actually that stephanie hands so clayton cowles i think um let letters the book uh stephanie hans uh paints it and it looks beautiful um there are a lot of moments of spectacle in this book the world of the game that they return to is pretty challenging to to um render i i think to to show how it looks visually is probably pretty challenging it's got some fairly generic uh, fantasy elements to it but also it, it it's pretty weird in a lot of ways as well as you, you'd probably expect from from something that that's pieced together from from all these different uh influences and stephanie hands is absolutely amazing at those but i i do have because it's possibly because it's fully painted because of the style of book it is i have a little bit more trouble uh, personally parsing parsing out which characters are which sometimes when they're talking they've all got very specific looks but because you're introduced to six of them all at once and then they have their different their avatars they don't all look the same in the game as they do outside of the game and there's a lot of characters there to be introduced to it all happens very quickly in that first issue and um the this isn't just a thing with uh a thing with uh, Stephanie Hans artwork it's an issue I have with a lot of comic creators so like it being introduced to lots of characters at the same time and not necessarily being able to tell them apart all the time is kind of a uh, an occupational hazard when it comes to reading comics I think especially if you have my particular my particular brain and my perception stuff um but in terms of the way the world is realised and the way the fantasy elements and the uh, action elements are, it looks beautiful. The actual sequential storytelling is really, really good. Having talked about um, having talked about Kino, I have to say that the more traditional sort of several panels on a page, obvious transitions, clear line art, stuff like that, 
it works better for me but this is just a beautiful looking book and the storytelling is pretty clear throughout for all the for all the concerns i have about it but so that was all there in the mix in the first two issues and i i could sort of see what what gillen was doing it all looked beautiful uh the stuff i mentioned notwithstanding in the third issue um there's a really because it has all of it has all of kieran gillen's uh uh preoccupations in it as well stuff uh with um the meta references to pop culture the uh there's a structure to everything that that is is realized uh explicitly within the world within the setting that they're in in this normally it's just something that's in the comics but in the uh, in the sort of the way the story is told but in this it's explicitly in the world um each issue kind of has at least a couple of gut punch emotional beats in uh but so far they're really working for me it's uh even though i can see what's happening there it's it's really really effective um you can see he put a lot of work into the world building all of the stuff he normally puts work into is all there um and there's lots of there's a lot of tributes going on there's a lot of really clear um uh sort of sentiment there's a lot there is some sentimentality in it i said that it's i think i said earlier on that it's not very sentimental i mean it's not superficially sentimental um this isn't a warm recollection of childhood and of growing up but there's a lot of heart to it there's a lot of heart to the interactions that are going on it's told in voiceover mostly various i think different characters have had voiceover moments um or it might all be voiced over by one person and I'm just getting confused because you aren't just following the one person all the time. Um, but the third issue had a tribute to two things that I'm not that fixated on. There's a, there's a tribute to uh, Tolkien and there's um, a, sort of a, mem- a memorial of, of uh, the world wars, of, of war in general, but I think of, of the Great War. It wasn't particularly great but that's what people call it um that even though i don't have a particular connection to those was so beautiful and it was one of those things where even though i could absolutely see the hand of the author in it um and part of me was thinking oh you clever sod while i was reading it it the it's quite impressive that the amount of emotional content in it still resonated with me even though i could sort of see it coming a little bit through the course of what was happening and there's a bit in the fourth issue that um almost took the legs out from me completely but that's a that's a whole different thing to do with having pets and stuff like that which i'm sure he didn't do on purpose what's interesting to me is that this book um a lot of the time i think that um Kieran Gillen in particular especially when he's collaborating with uh, Jamie McKelvey is thinking with a a very they're thinking with a very sort of young brain maybe a little bit certainly um it resonate it resonates with audiences in their late teens and like 20s I guess as well I don't think I don't say that to um undermine it at all um but there's been lots of stuff about um 
pop culture and youth in revolt and stuff like that. Um, this book does carry around all the crankiness of forty somethings in it. It's all in. It's all in there. There's um, all of the doubts, self doubts, uh, resentments, um, regrets. They're all in there, and um, it really works. That stuff really comes through. It feels like a very. I mean, I, I know it's a very personal book for Kieran Gillen, and when you see him write about. Um, most of the projects he does at some level they're nearly they're nearly all quite personal but this one I always think of him as a little bit younger than me and I forget that as I get older that means that those people who are younger than me are still getting older as well this did resonate with me as much as a 45 year old as it did um, as as someone who has a lot of those same cultural touchstones I'm having a few confused feelings about it and I'm hoping I'm enjoying the book more as it goes um, as I start to settle into settle into the world, uh, the the melodramatic moments or the big dramatic moments are working on me absolutely. Um, none of them are oversold, so nothing gets too saccharine or or squeaky or um, overdone. I and it's it's all beautiful. Um, it's not exactly how I expected to react to a spiritual successor to the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon series. Let's let's put it that way. At the very least, let's put it that way. That's that's it. That's pretty much all I've got to say about comics this week. Um, hopefully, be back either next week or soon after. Uh, happy birthday again to David Wren. Happy seventy third birthday, and um, happy birthday to you as well, listener. Happy birthday to all of us. Uh, remember, I'm on Twitter um, as Nixit, N-I-X-S-I-G-H-T. Uh, the podcast is on there at IssuesPod, I-S-S-U-E-S-P-O-D. There's a the other 10% group on Facebook. And um, if you like us, tell people about us. I say us, it's just been me and Peter this week. Hopefully some other people will start showing up soon. Bye. Mm-hmm.